Hi, I'm Brandon O'Brien from Redeemer City to City. In this series, Church and Outbreak, we're talking with staff and ministry partners around the country as we try to figure out together how to respond wisely and faithfully to the global COVID-19 pandemic. I recorded this conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Carrion, almost two weeks ago. That was before George Floyd, an African-American man, was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis. That was before protests erupted in more than 300 cities in the United States and many cities around the world. I was tempted out of sensitivity to this current moment not to run this episode at all because our original conversation topic was the coronavirus and how pastors should be preaching and shepherding their congregations during the crisis. When I revisited the conversation, though, I realized that it's deeply relevant because it actually talks about the reasons there are protests going on all over the country and all over the world. We talk in here in the next half hour or so about the profound inequities that were exposed by the coronavirus, the ways and the reasons that different communities were affected differently by the outbreak. We talked about deep divisions in the body of Christ in America that were highlighted by the pandemic itself and by the politics around it and the different responses to the restrictions that were put in place to contain it. I confess in this episode my deep disappointment and frustration with the theology and church systems that I grew up with because they failed to prepare me for the kinds of grief and suffering that so many are experiencing right now. We talk about the deep resources and the great contribution of black and brown churches in America. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this episode, while it may seem a little bit out of step with the current conversation, I think is a really great context and creates a helpful backdrop for understanding why America is responding the way it is to uh, the things that are happening in the world. And it gives us some clues about how the church in America can respond. So I hope you'll listen to this conversation with my friend, uh, Michael Carrion, who's Vice President of Church Planting and Leadership Development at City to City, New York. Uh, thank you for listening. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Really happy you're here. Oh, Brandon, thank you so much. It's always a joy to work with you and to talk with you. Uh, I just respect you so much and, and your ministry and your gift set to City to City. And um, you are you are truly uh, an anomaly and a, and a breath of fresh air. Oh, and I mean that sincerely, not because we're on a podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. Enjoy that. Make sure the uh, edits. <laughs> I'll save that one just for me. Um, uh, yeah, and I have missed. We have now been on work from home orders for over two months, so yes. we have not had the the benefit of the office conversations and the yeah. you know and that kind of thing. And that's one of the things that has made this situation i think so hard that um even those of us who work together in the city are uh we're, we're actually all having very different experiences of the coronavirus outbreak um so i live in manhattan which is of the boroughs uh i think the least affected uh, or the fewer fewest numbers we're in uh inwood washington heights and inwood is one of the more affected places in manhattan yeah um, and so, yeah, so even where you are in this little island kind of determines the experience you're having with yep. this circumstance. You're in the South Bronx. Yep. And so I'm, I'd love for you to tell us what, how, how are you experiencing this where you live and minister? What are you seeing? And then maybe what are you hearing from 
other pastors around the city? So um, recently I moved to Inglewood, New Jersey, so I'm no longer in the South Bronx. Okay. But, but I did not escape the COVID pandemic because right in Teaneck is the epicenter of New Jersey. Hmm. You cross the street into New Jersey, that's Inglewood. And right in Bergen County is where there's been an explosion. So it's just as bad hmm. as it is uh, New Jersey is second behind New York. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that people are not watching or observing, I think, or paying enough attention to when I think about the social platforms and the scenarios is that this disease is indiscriminate and is migrating. It's mutating as it's moving. And every time I hit a new social context, it is indiscriminate in who it um, affects, who it takes down. Uh, from the young to the old, from the old to the young. And so in the South Bronx specifically, there are sections of the Bronx that are just totally COVID-saturated. That, you know, um, Kingsbridge was one area that was mentioned in the uh, recent uh, mayor's report. Um, I've been privileged uh, most recently to be um, appointed to the mayor's council to address uh, the reopening of the city of New York uh, as the covid uh, transitions, along with 45 of the clergy um, and, and, you know, the voices of the city uh, for the for the uh, for the communities of faith, and so um, what we're hearing from across the five boroughs, uh, specifically, is that there's a variance of people's uh, interruptions. For some people in the more suburban financial centers, it's not as bad. But when you go into the urban pockets where the socioeconomically disenfranchised, the poor, the immigrant, the refugees live, the undomiciled, the homeless, it is it is it is is a plague. Mm. It's a plague. And what you're seeing is plague-like liens and and uh, and patterns. So we have entire families catching this disease from young child to grandmother and then the grandmother passes and then the grandfather passes and then now the father's in icu and now the mother's coming down with the symptoms and the children have it as well those that's literally what the south Bronx has been looking like um when you look at the news and you see that in parts of brooklyn that the the um the uh the funeral parlors are overrun with death dead bodies and so literally just came out in downtown brooklyn where there was one one funeral parlor that had two u-haul trucks filled with dead bodies and they start to ooze and decompose the smell of death in that community. They hit the paper and they were stripped of their license. But you know, the reality is in the hundred years, we've not seen death like this. Mm. Every, every the city morgue is overrun. Every, every funeral parlor is overrun In the Bronx. They're doing uh, services when they can, when they can be approved. South Bronx and other pockets, Queens hit hard, Brooklyn hit hard. So, and in their poor communities, you see the same patterns of plague, like, uh, you know, movement. And so uh, the categorization of death is now something we got to pay attention to. The mutation of this disease, the diagnosis is changing. And if our technology and if our professionals don't have the intuitive, uh, t- uh, you know, our leans and observations, they'll, they'll be behind the gun. And that's, that's the problem with this. We're so behind the gun. Now, we're in New York City, we're the epicenter globally, right? Right. Uh, uh, still the epicenter. It, this is a migrating disease. It's going to get to the outskirts of the rest of the country. It already has. And as it settles in, it starts to mutate. So I think we're going to be dealing with this for a long time, but in particularly amongst the poor. All of our ministries, my, my other life from, say, the city, as you know, I serve as a VP of Church Planting and Leadership Development, and, and in that context, supervising and coaching, resourcing and training 
200 plus planters in our ecosystem and where we've we've just been able to to god be the glory our revamp funding and get out 25 29 grants mm-hmm. we just approved yesterday for churches to re uh, launch re strategize and, and and reconnect with their communities virtually um, so this changes the patho- our, our methodology in church planting, calling for a redefinition and a new metric system. Mm. Uh, anyway, so that's another type of conversation. But to yeah. your question, yeah, uh, that's that's what it's like. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a lot going on. Well, and add to that, um, in these communities, uh, every community, but um, you know, uh, my children are now uh, home from school. It occurred to me when they canceled school, that that means that my family has nowhere to be until September. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. <laughs> like the, the idea of being, you know, everything just sort of stopped and the rest of the country, parts of it have opened back up, but New York city has not opened up. And no. so you've got is it like 1.1 million public school students all of a sudden home all the time. And so if we're only talking about pastors, you have pastors who are leading through this, historic thing that they were not prepared for. They're also potentially, you know, homeschooling their children and they may be dealing with uh, the illness of a spouse or family member. They may be dealing with layoffs or reduced hours or whatever, or they may be uh, bivocational. They're also an essential worker or they're married to an essential worker. And so they're sort of, you know, out in it all the time. Um, So there's a lot of, in addition to just the ministry side, which is enough. There's a whole lot of disruption. There's there's, this systemic disruption. And to your point, you know, you're right. This is stress. And there's no seminary class that prepares you. (laughs) There's no, I'm going to say, there's no post-grad seminary, nothing. There's no theologian we can pull. There's there's patterns of servitude that we can see. And when we look back at antiquity, going back to the plagues of Rome, uh, and and you see the miracle signs and wonders because of the church that's willing to, to put itself in harm's way. But to your point, there's systemic ramifications uh, because of this pandemic. You're right. Economically, we are just stepped into a depression, uh, and particularly within the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean for people who have to rent and pay mortgage and leasing? Mm-hmm. On the ministry side, there are churches that have stopped. I still have to pay the mortgage and lease on the properties that they lease to congregate. Uh, mothers who had full-time jobs are now at home teachers, principal, dean, coach come on now and so and so, so and then so then and then the 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 department of education uh wasn't prepared for this this happened from one day to the next and so the elongation the the pushing back of the school the summer school was now pushed back because it's still too much uh, convoluted data on what does it mean and how it's thriving among us so now summer school gets pushed back and you know we don't know we don't know i, I know i came out of a meeting where uh one official said it's gonna take a year and a half for the systems to recalibrate in our content, the city, a year and a half at minimal uh, before some of this gets regulated. Do you know how much damage economically, sociologically, and uh, um, infrastructure can happen in a year and a half of this? You know, God, we, we Lord have mercy. And so it's not just the sickness, it's all the other stuff that is a byproduct of this thing hitting um, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's just rocking us. And, you know, God is still on the throne, and we look to the hills and what's come with our help, and that's what's been keeping us functioning and moving uh, in, in our context. But it's real, and you're right. There's, and there's women, uh, there's particularly the women that are single heads of household. That's my concern. Single heads of household, they were already mommy and daddy, right? 
well, first of all, let's let's be really transparent about something. There was already economic tsunamis and hurricanes against people of color and those that are on the margins uh, already. There was already systemic injustice. There was already issues that the poor were dealing with. This now compounds that, all of those issues, and, and brings up, of course, other types of issues. So it's, it's so difficult, yeah. So in light of that, you know, one of the advantages, I suppose, from my point of view of ever, all the churches, you know, so many churches meeting online is that I can kind of snoop around. I can watch videos and I can hear how, you know, how sermons are going and what worship is like in different places. And I've seen sort of a mixed reaction. I've seen churches, even churches in the city here, who are the, the sermon series could be preached in any season of life under any circumstances. Um, I've seen others that feel like they're, they're making connections to the kind of current situation. Um, but to be honest, I haven't seen a ton of just kind of really contextualized, focused preaching from pastors on the, the pressures, the reorientations, the disruptions, the, like, the, how do we stay on mission? What does it mean to love our families and our neighbors and like in all of this? I'm curious what advice you would give for people who are preaching. Let's start in New York City, right, in, the, in an epicenter. What kind of preaching is required in a time like this? Well, you know, to your point, I would say there's, there's, uh, there's, um, you're calling out the, the evangelical neutrality hmm. uh, of the comfortable church, right? And that neutrality, because we've asked the same question as a person of color, as a, as a social justice advocate, as a person who's always done, for the last 33 decades, ministry in the margins. I've often wondered why certain churches don't speak about certain issues, but we're opening the same Bible. How is it that we're not, there's not a lament and an outcry for the children at the border? Uh, or mass incarceration of blacks and Latinos, or literacy in legislature that is biased over one people group or another, or systemic injustice and racism. Why is the church not speaking to those issues? Those are not social justice issues. Those are people issues. Those are kingdom issues that need to be uh, reconciled. And the, and the place that should we do the reconciling uh, is, is where the ministry of reconciliation is, the church. Mm -hmm. right? And so, so that's the first thing is that we have to see a deconstruction of the neutrality. I think in a lot of ways, the church on the West has learned to focus on what people want to hear versus real life issues. And I think in such a time as this, churches that stay in that modus operandi, you know, whatever, you know, movie theme or something like that, you know, and, and I, I could tell you, and the churches that I'm dealing with in, the, in our context, we have services called quarantine. I mean, that's the service we just came out of, quarantined. And let's go to First Peter. Let's talk about persecution. Let's talk about uh, seeing past our troubles. Let's talk about and bring the text into the space mm -hmm. so we can see the parallels. We can look back in antiquity and biblical antiquity and pull out the truth of God and how God kept his people. And if God kept those in Bithynia, God will keep those in New York City. Mm -hmm. We've got to make that contextual bridge because the Bible is, is, is the living word. It's the infallible word. It's the word of God. It's a light unto our path. But if we don't turn on the light in the pulpit, we will keep our people in the dark of neutrality. And we'll try to preach like everything is the same. And unfortunately, it's not the same. It, and the same wasn't normal anyway, unless right. if we would be honest. Yep. And yep. so I think that churches and in the context of epicenter, COVID-19, need to need to 
rethink their sermon strategies. And even if they're at a church where there is not much sickness, not much layoffs, not much, because this also reveals the tale of two churches, especially within this global city like New York. There is the church uh, that is in the center that is financially, um, I've been on the platform with a couple of these guys over late on other podcasts, that is financially stable, that they, they, they have not gathered, but they've got the money in the bank that'll keep their building, that'll keep their mortgage, that'll keep their staff, that'll keep their worship team and their band director. And they've even got three to four months, six, seven months savings to help them get through the storm when they hit that, that place. So when they can rely on the pocket, they don't have to rely on the Lord. So they can stay, well, how do we continue to just have patience and ride this out? And, and, and so you'll see that pattern in, in what you described. Some churches are still preaching what they're preaching. Then there's other churches uh, in the city that are not in the center, but on the margins. And they're straight talking about quarantine, diaspora. What, is it, what does it look like to be in persecution? And this is not persecution, but this is a plague, right? Well, this is a storm. This is a tsunami. And how do we say peace be still? Is the Lord asleep in the boat and he needs to come out and we're, we're having a panic attack? Lord, don't you see this thing is killing us? And, you know, you have little faith, right? You know. And so <laughs> ultimately, how do we look at common day situations and then, and then bring it to the pulpit and then speak from that situation? I mean, let me give the context for me. 13 people died in COVID due to COVID uh, uh, in our church. How do I not address the death of one of our charter school children? How do I not address the death of a 20-year-old young adult member of our church? How do I not address the grandmother, the uncle? I've got to talk about life everlasting. I've got to talk about he is the God of resurrection. I've got to talk about because he lived, we live. And go into the promises of God. I've got to quote Paul and say, oh, death, where is thy stain? Because if our saints have run the race. In one sense, we lament and we mourn because we weren't ready for this. On the other side of that, we, we, we rejoice because, uh, you know, death is not the same for the believer, right? We step into eternity, and if they could come back, would they? Because they're in the presence of their maker. And so ultimately, we've got to realize that life and death and our anthropology and how we unpack that in our, in our pulpits, we have got to go there. And even if it's not happening to your church, we can, teach, we can teach pedagogical leanings. We can teach Bloom's theory of taxonomy, uh, cognitive head, heart, hand. How do we, you know, we can teach three expositional narrative preaching. We can topical, we can, we can do that. You know what you cannot teach, Brandon? The heart. The heart, if the heart does not care, if the heart is hard, if the heart is critical and cynical, I, I pray that, I pray that preachers and teachers from across, whoever's listening to this would pray f- to have God's heart for the poor and for the broken and for the suffering in this moment. That's going to change their preaching. That's going to change their sermon. That's going to change their research. Yeah. So a couple of things that this raises for me is I have I've had the, the gift of worshiping in a multi-ethnic church in the city, uh, fairly socioeconomically diverse and it has helped me to see things that I didn't see before. Yeah. And I am, uh, I think one of the things that I have felt a little disillusionment is quite the right word, but it's probably, it probably is in the last year or so is that my, uh, predominantly white, um, 
evangelical heritage did not equip me for things like lament or for prophetic proclamation. We just, we didn't even have the categories. And so when you mentioned before the, you know, the sort of uh, evangelical neutrality, I think the gift of churches at the margins and not just ethnic minority churches, but church socioeconomically um, uh, marginalized and there, there are resources in those traditions that are, have for a long time, I think been overlooked in American ministry conversations. Yeah. But I think in a moment like this, I have, I feel like I've exhausted the resources of my tradition and the traditions that feel like they have something to offer right now are traditions like the ones you're describing who have a much longer heritage of connecting God's word to the historical moment, to the, the um, oppression or depression or whatever of the moment. Yeah. Certain churches in the city for a very long time have been in crisis and so at some level, the, the muscles of dealing with crisis are much better conditioned. And yes. I think a lot of other churches for the first time are sort of caught flat footed for the first time, you know, they, they have no idea what six, six months from now looks like and yep. how do I run a fall program and what do I do with back to school and what, I, and that feels like crisis, but it's not crisis in comparison, in comparison to, the, to the sort of to the the kind of life situation that other churches have been ministering in for a long time, yes. and I think one of the things that I hope for and pray for in this situation is that the light, uh, that, that sort of our attention would drift from the kinds of ministry experiences that we typically describe as successful, and they would look at churches in the margins that have been doing exactly what they're doing now for a hundred years or 150 years or 200 years. Thank you for your um, consistent voice in these issues. And, and, uh, and I hope that something like this, this resource can shed light on the kind of leadership that's happening in places that are very often overlooked. Um, because I think that's the leadership that's the most necessary for the church in this moment. And it is, it's not the leadership we're accustomed to appealing to, right? Or, or, or looking to for answers. And um, so thank you for 30 years of laboring in that kind of, kind of relative obscurity uh, yeah. for a moment like this, where that experience is absolutely invaluable. Well, thank you for that. And I appreciate that. I love your, I love how you just remixed everything I said and made it palatable. <laughs> no, I really, no, it was good, but I was really good. I really, I'm joking. You know that. No, but everything that you're saying, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there was one church yeah. that was better, but there's a tale of two churches and two responses. You can clearly see that because some churches, when I talk about, even when we gather as in the, in the gathering with other networks, I talk about the loss of life. Other people don't even have a response for it because that's not what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And you can't exaggerate. If somebody's dead, that's not an exaggeration. That's, that's death. You know what I'm saying? And some people, you know, what's been frustrating for me, not as a person of color, 
But when I, you know, you know, I have a national platform to God be the glory. You know, I'm in several different networks. I'm on the Spanish arm of NAE and so on and so forth. Work, work with you and Dr. Keller and Dr. Reynolds and so many others. You know, Steve uh, and everyone and Robert Guerrero. You know, the, the Yoda of physiologists <laughs> and Dr. Alan Hurst. And so it, it's so grateful for this time to be in this season. But what has frustrated me is that when you start to articulate the situation. They almost look at you like you gotta be exaggerating this, bro. Mm-hmm. God, this this can't be true. This is absolutely true. This is, and if you go back a hundred years, it was the truth. Hundred years with the Spanish influenza, and how the church responded then, and how the church responded in the in the cholera in the 15th century, and then the bubonic plague before that, right? How the church has responded historically. This was always the tension. It's like almost every hundred years, there's an opportunity for the church to recalibrate. I said that in the Washington Post uh, uh, interview that in some ways it's the great equalizer because we all see where we are, where we're deficient. But it also reveals how very different we are and what our foci have been. And, and, and I would say that as we, look, as we look at the situation, what I would want to tell majority culture churches is please expose yourself to the margin space. Please expose yourself. I know it's uncomfortable, but there's no other way to build relationships with people from across the room other than walking across the room and introducing yourself to them. Yeah. There is, it's that prolific and that simple. And so we have to do that. I rejoice at the opportunity to be here and to talk like this around people who are not exposed to 30 years of, of, of the South Bronx you know, missiology and what that looks like and how differently it's nuanced to the economically disenfranchised or to the immigrant or to the returning citizen or to, you know, misguided legislature that favors one over the other and how we take a perfect expense stance. That's, that's a life, 30 years is a lifetime of learning and, 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 and education and to then be able to come in and spark a movement. Mm-hmm. But when the margin hits the center, uh, the, the, there's a spark. And I believe the other side of this while we have so much to deal with, I believe there's going to be an awakening in the church. I believe that the that the majority culture church and the margin church are going to walk hand in hand. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I think that as we come seeking first to understand, then making ourselves understood, together we learn how to lament. Yeah. Because while the majority church doesn't know how to lament suffering, the, the margin church has to learn how to forgive. Mm. And not every white person is a racist or out to get me. And not every cop is a profiler trying to arrest me. And not every politician is someone trying to use me. We have got to remove the scales of pain and suffering, though they've got to be legitimized and acknowledged. But we've got to move past our suffering to meet the other in majority culture. And majority culture has got to move over from a place of privilege and power and, and meet the one that's had none. And so when that happens... I believe that the spirit is going to be poured upon our flesh. I know that sounds very Pentecostal, but I'm going to quote. <laughs> Good for you. I, yeah, I believe that's going to spark a movement. The gospel moves us, Brandon. Yeah, yeah. There's so much that I would like for us to talk about, but we can uh, wrap it up with this. It's easy in New York City, if I'm in a majority culture church that has been largely unaffected by coronavirus stuff, and I want to interact with or be exposed immediately with a, a congregation that has had a very different experience. I can literally walk, you know, a mile in any direction and find that from wherever I am in New York City, right? What would you say to people who who just haven't really seen this at all? Maybe it totally disrupted their life. 
shut down their business. It did other things. And they're just not sure what the fuss is about or whatever else, right? Um, and that person is a Christian. Maybe that person's a, a pastor. Like, how, how, what, does, what does a Christian leadership response look like outside of an epicenter in a place where maybe this hasn't been a big deal? But in the spirit of the kind of unity of the body of Christ in America, you know, what would you like to see from Christians outside of New York City? I, I would love for them to do the research of what's happening in areas like New York City, uh, research what happened in Italy, research what's happening in Brazil, research what's happening in Santo Domingo, because there are patterns that are similar. And, you know, I just mentioned Italy. Okay, they, they could be... A, 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 um, they could, that could be a rich synthesis. But Brazil and Santo Domingo, those are, that's, her, that's her, the economics there are somewhat similar uh, to, to some parts of the, you know, of, of, of uh, urban pockets of New York City. I would say, please seek first to understand. Mm-hmm. I would say, please don't just listen to the sometimes political rhetoric that tells you what to believe. Yeah. Research it for yourself. Uh, uh, I would say contact, if you're in a denomination, Contact other denominational conferences or other uh, institutions that are doing work in the city, that are connected. Call city to city, and I'll give you an earful mm. of, what, <laughs> of where you can start learning. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and, and ultimately, uh, seek first to understand. Then make yourself understood. Uh, I, think that, I think that when we look at Matthew 25, there's an implication there. Because when I was hungry, you came. That's not just an eschatological. We've had this conversation before. That's not just the framework, the, the sheep, the goats. Forget that imagery. There's an implication there and also an invitation. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was you, right? So when did I do this? Well, you, you just went. And the, and, and the going and the being sent and the researching. You have to be willing to feed me when I'm hungry. You have to be willing to clothe me when I'm naked. You have to be willing... And that's a heart condition. I would say, if you feel angry and disturbed at your business, at the frustrations, think about think about the mother who I was on the phone with from our charter school, who is screaming because she has children in second, third, fourth, and fifth grade that looked up to her son who was in our seventh grade. And he's gone. Now think about what you're facing. And then think about if you have children, what if it was your 11-year-old? And when you put yourself in that place, you know, Brandon, the truth is I will never forget this woman's screams. I will never forget not having the words to tell her. I will never forget that. All I can say is that we're here for you. How can we help you? Jesus loves you. And I know I get it. You know, I've got seminary, you know, prepared. But sometimes you just can't preach at the issue. Sometimes you've got to mourn and lament in the issue. And then at the appropriate time, uh, teach, share the news, share Jesus. Sometimes sharing Jesus is just being in the space and, and, and owning and, and, and being willing to embrace the hurt and mourning with those who mourn. And my experience in my journey of ministry the best preachers and teachers, the best prophets have been those who have been in that prophetic space and did no preaching, just watched and listened. That would be my admonishment to, to these folks. 
Thank you for that. And thank you for your time with us today. And we're gonna have to do this again because we just touched on a lot of really important things. And as you said at the beginning, the situation, we're in the middle of it. We're not at the end of it, That's at right. least in New York City. And I have to think, you know, I have family in Arkansas and Louisiana and all that. And I see them beginning to celebrate that it's over. And I think, well, it's not it's not over. You're, maybe the lockdown is over or something, but this is not over. Um, and so I think that we're going to need to be having these kinds of conversations for a long time. Yeah. Um, and maybe as people have the bandwidth out, out of the, uh, and emerging a little out of the, the immediate fog of the disorientation of all of these things, there can be some really constructive conversation and work and listening and understanding um, that, that can make us all stronger. Absolutely. So, Thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be uh, on the podcast. Thank you.